0: Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them. With your host, Emmanuel.
1: Welcome to another episode of the podcast Flavors Unknown. The only place where you can listen from celebrity chefs to upcoming chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists sharing the latest industry trend and what makes them successful. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. Thank you so much for listening today. If you are a first listener, I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S., and every other week, you will be able to hear directly from top chefs and mixologists from different regions of the U.S. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and join our community of people curious about food, drinks, and pastry. My guest last week was the award-winning bar director Beau Dubois from Puesto in San Diego. On that episode, Dubois explained how to revamp a drink menu and how to give a twist on a classic cocktail. Today, I am really pleased to have Chef Chris Shepherd of Houston, Texas, on the show. Chef Chris Shefford is a James Beard Award winner and was recently named by the Rob Report magazine as the best chef in the world. He has helped change the landscape of the Houston culinary scene since opening Underbelly in 2012. In 2017, he opened One Fifth, a five-year restaurant project that changes concepts every year. And in 2019, all his three restaurants, UB preserved one-fifth Mediterranean, and Georgia James made the number one spot on Texas' monthly list of the best new restaurant in America. Hey, Hi, Chef. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show, Flavors Unknown. I'm really excited uh, to have you today.
0: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: Quite an honor. The honor is mine because uh, you are... Houston, most recognizable chef at the moment, from what uh, you know, we read everywhere, and you have uh, received uh, even recently, like a major honor. Uh, you were named uh, kind of like the Chef of the Year in one of the famous luxury lifestyle magazine in Los Angeles, like the Rob Report. So, uh, how did you react when you uh, read this?
0: <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that coming. Actually, I didn't even know that was happening. I got off the plane and. You know, somebody had texted me like a picture and said, hey, man, congrats. And I was like, what is that? And like Rob report. And I was like, all right, cool. And so I was walking through the airport and I was like, I' oh, see if they have the Rob report. And I picked one up and I was like, uh, <laughs> wait, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I took it to my fiance. I was like, did you know about this? She's like, no. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, it's a cool surprise.
1: Yeah, and you were the only chef even mentioned in the magazine, correct? I mean, yes, there was sir. other restaurants and so on. But so that that's pretty cool. I think it's uh, it's uh, of course a recognition for you, but as well for all the people that um, you know, all your team and the people working with you, correct?
0: Yeah, and for our entire city, it's been fantastic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I was recently in Houston, and we quickly met in December. I mean, Houston is known to be uh, one of the most diverse city in the U.S. So. How would you describe the food scene uh, in Houston?
0: Well, I think it's a growing food scene. And I think what's an amazing thing about it is it's not only just like higher end restaurants, but little mom and pop shop places all across the city and and everybody working together to kind of do their thing. And then that, but that's a, it's an amazing thing for the city because you can, you can go to, you know, so many amazing restaurants and try so many different types of food and with you know, with our with our diversity that we're talking about. You know, you're talking about Southeast Asia. You're talking about you know Central and you know North, like Mexico. You're talking about Salvador. You're talking about the Middle East, India, and and it's just all. We're not a European based city. We're more of like port and medicine and and things like that. And so you drive these food cultures that uh, you know pockets of immigrants that are in all these different parts of the city, cooking for their own you know their own cultures. And so you, you're seeing these delicious takes on different cuisines. And so it's really beautiful to be able to go out and try all of these things. Mm-hmm. To learn. And this, is,
1: really. and this part of your process, correct? I mean, you spend time a lot in in those different, you know, moms and pop shops, as you call them, or yeah. um, you know, small restaurants and so on. And and not only discover, but learn about how those people uh, cook and, and uh, you know, the different in, like key ingredients of their uh, cuisine and their culture, correct? Yeah,
0: it's, it's more of just like why, you know? It's like, but the best way to start to have a conversation is through the food on the table, and you know, once you can establish that, then you can establish like friendship conversations and like learning from each other, and like not just talking about food all the time, but talking about life, and and, and you know, and that's that's the beauty of it. It's like food takes you to these places, and and learn, you get to learn from people, and they can learn from you, and just sharing life experiences, and that's it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think that the, the learning process and the way that this food can be done is anywhere in this country. It is this country at this point. And so it's getting out and learning from others and, and teaching and just having conversations and just becoming a human. And I think it's very easy to do here in Houston, but it's it's very easy to do anywhere in the country. But I think here in Houston, it's very special because it's been happening for a very long time. Houston Houstonians are so opening to learning. You know, I think we t- I had this conversation with somebody about these the other day when they're talking about ramen, and it's like, well, you know, ramen isn't really a Houston thing. There's There are ramen shops, but Houstonians are more opt to go get pho before they will ramen because we have such a large Vietnamese culture, and it's something that we've grown up on. Ramen is relatively new to us, and so, because there isn't a strong Japanese population, but Vietnamese, absolutely. Chinese, absolutely. To, to go have, you know, a beef shank noodle soup in a Chinese restaurant is probably, you're going to have that more often than you would a bowl of ramen. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And and this is what your, um, let's say, you know, the, the cookbook that you have uh, published recently, like Cook uh, Like a Local, that can celebrate, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. This is like the celebration of the people that you have met and as well, like the some key ingredients that for you are part of the culture of what Houston is today.
0: Yeah. Because when we talk about Cook Like a Local, most people nowadays think of that as like carrots are growing and strawberries are in season and, and, and it's like, no. We're not talking about locality of ingredient. We're talking about locality of culture and cook like what's around you and learn from people that are around you, just, you know, better your life and to better your existence in the world. Like learning from people is one of the greatest things that we could possibly do. And so, and to share stories and to have conversations, it's the easiest thing to do.
1: And I I thought it was interesting. I have your book and, and, uh, you know, looking at it and, you know, being broken in those, Chapters that are dedicated to like unique ingredients. So, what, why, what was the the rationale of the selection of those uh, six ingredients that you have, uh, you know, in the <laughs> book, like the fish yeah, sauce but, and chilies and so It's
0: on. the ingredients that kind of transpire the world. You know, you could take that anywhere. Like I was standing, and you know, it, it, you start talking about herbs and chilies and spices and fish sauce and you know, and rice and, and and all of these ingredients that really kind of go around the globe. But like I was in predominantly Mexican kitchen the other day look, you know, staying in the cooler, I was working out of that restaurant for an event. I was like, man, chilies, cilantro, mint, this, that. I was like, all I need is fish sauce and I can go anywhere. (laughs) And it was, it's, it's really a beautiful thing. And that's like, once you can tie these ingredients together, they really do circle the globe.
1: And fish sauce is not an easy one. I know for me, it was a kind of a, Acquired taste. That's not something that you can, um, you know, easily, um, you know, enjoy. So it has to. It grew up, grew up on you.
0: It does. <laughs> you know, and it, it, it's and it it's the simple. You know, there's some recipes in there kind of teach you to manipulate it just a little bit to be able to like not know that it's there, but to understand that it's there. And that was the key thing. Is like if you can take a bunch of herbs and a bunch of chilies and some sugar, you know, a sweetness base like honey or what have you, and some garlic and some citrus, and then add fish sauce to that, puree that, and then it marinate that into beef or chicken or poultry or fish or what have you once you cook that the fish sauce doesn't really step into the forefront but it's there and and it's you know once you can start to understand why it's there and it gives you that rich umami kind of salty characteristic that you're looking for you can it starts to grow on you know the first time i had fish sauce in a vietnamese restaurant i was like eh, eh. I'll take peanut sauce, <laughs> yeah, Thank you so much. I don't need that. And then all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> later on, I started like, it's not that I discovered it. It's been there forever. It's that I started to appreciate it.
1: So you have a, a chapter called spices. So what what kind of uh, spices do you focus on, on on this chapter? We just
0: focus on dry spice and, and really learning like the dry spice cultures and, you know, learning more about how to use star anise and cinnamon and spices like that that you don't normally see.
1: Your book is telling a unique story. So um, how is it, uh, f- you know, how would you describe the people listening to, um, you know, to the podcast? How is your book different from uh, other, you know, cookbooks out there?
0: It's basically, you know, it's a it's a love letter to Houston, but it's not just that. It's a love letter to our country. It's a love letter to where we're going. And it's a love letter to accepting and to start to learn and understand like where we're going as people. We have so many cultures in every city that, you know, it's like appreciate where you're at, appreciate the things that you have and appreciate the people that are around you and start to learn how to exist together. And the easiest way, like I said, to do that is through food. It really is. You know, everybody like, ah, you know what, I'm going to go try an Indian restaurant. And then all of a sudden you find an Indian restaurant that you like. And all of a sudden you keep going back there, you keep going back there and keep going back there. And if you're a cook, you become very inquisitive. And it's like, well, how do you do this? You know, and how, what just walk me through the steps of this, you know, how do you like, you know, I, I've had so many times where, you know, I, I reference in the book, so many different families that have, I've learned from across the, throughout time here in Houston, you know, the Patels, Auntie Patel all the time. She's like, quit cooking like an American. I'm like, okay. She's like, you need to cook like me. You need to cook like this, where it's like, you know, I sat around, we did a dinner together and, I made a dish. I was like, here, taste this. And she looked at me. She's like, son, give me your spice rack. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. And to me, I was like, man, I'm cooking for 100 people. This is very bold and flavorful as it is. And like, where are we going? And like, all of the cooks just kind of like head in the pot looking at what she's doing. She's just handfuls of things. And I'm like, oh, my God. I don't know. I'm going to have to start over. And she's like, she just stirs it. She's like, taste it. And I tasted. I was like, this is beautiful and once you can realize like you need to quit cooking for yourself and start cooking for the culture you can cook free at that point
1: your mindset is very specific I mean I've, I've spoken with with a lot of you know chefs uh, through um, you know the different uh, recording on the podcast which is always very exciting and meeting new people and but the the, you really love people and you really you know believe uh, this like true collaboration which is you know part of your approach to food that seems to be very very you know essential for you
0: we're all here together (laughs) you know we're all here together we're all breathing the same air we're all doing the same things you know so it's uh, yeah
1: but you know at the end of the day there's business as well so you know yeah. people sometimes I'm more focused on that aspect
0: yeah i mean but it's like if we can bring if in a city that i live in where there's 4 million plus people and you talk about Houston specifically and it's always ranked as like one of the highest per capita eating out cities in the country right people are always eating out here and I want everybody to have a little bit of that. We're all hustling together. We're all doing the same things. We're all running restaurants. We're all cooking for food for people. Let's all go everywhere. You know, I don't ever want to see anybody not succeed. So if we can do it all together, that's the whole all the boats rise with the tide theory. If we can do that, then it just makes Houston a better food city. People start to travel here more and more and more and more for food. And you get you know, and then the cooks start traveling here to start cooking in Houston and it becomes a food destination
1: is that better for everyone? Let's go back a little bit in time. So what compelled you to um, to become a chef?
0: <laughs> you know, I was a dishwasher in a sushi bar in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I didn't want to go to business school. I didn't want to be an accountant. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't, you know, none of that seemed like, entertaining to me. And I can't paint, so I couldn't be the artist part of the deal. And I just like cooking for friends. And then, you know, I took a job as a dishwasher and I just started. And all of a sudden, like, I'm working at the temporary station. I'm working the grill. I'm working saute, you know. And, like, finally, you know, my boss was like, you need to go to culinary school. And I was like, what is that? You know, and this is, like, 93. It's, like, it's a place they teach you to cook. And I was like, oh, it's college. And he's like, yeah. I was like, okay, cool. And so I started looking that up. I moved to Houston to go to culinary school, and I always said that I'd go back to Tulsa. And then I saw like how much I could learn here, and I just never went back.
1: And uh, which is interesting is that it seems that you have a very unconventional approach to um, like the restaurant business. If you know, looking at everything that you have done in the past, that you opened a restaurant like Underbelly in 2012, and then you closed it in 18 even if the business was, in fact, really good. So what, what was the rationale behind that decision?
0: It was, you know, we had Hay Merchant and Underbelly, which were two restaurants that were combined. I mean, there's Underbelly on one side of the 10,000 square feet, then Hay Merchant on the other side. So two different kitchens, two different restaurants running at the same time. And then I had a, a unique lease opportunity that came up right down the street. And, you know, I was always said that, like, if I could keep... If I could do another restaurant, but keep it close, then that would make sense, you know, where I could go back and forth. And so this opportunity came up called One Fifth, which was a five-year lease. And I would change the concept every year.
1: Yeah, that's another unconventional approach to the restaurant business. So how do you come up with this? What was the, the reason for for this? Uh, one morning you woke up and said, "This is what I have to do." <laughs> because- no,
0: I literally was sitting in the meeting and they were talking to me about like, you know, the people that own the property of the, where the restaurants at. You know, they said, "Well, it's a beautiful restaurant, but we're not really sure what we want to do it for it long term." So I just need someone to go in this restaurant for a couple of years. I said, "Well, I'll do it for five but this is how I'm going to do it. And because I'm trying to figure out what's next, you know, and it's like,
1: so it's a, uh, what is it for you to test different concepts and see what's uh, stick?
0: It's exactly it. Cause you know, you, you most rest, most of the time you open a restaurant, you put, you know, a couple million dollars into it. And then like, does it work? You hope do people like it? Do, am my cooking things right? Are the costs in line? Or like, is it smart business plan? All of that. I looked at this as like, Hey, it's a five year thing where if it works, it works. If not, okay, I'm still going to figure it out where we could take each year and figure out what if we were going to do a restaurant like we have to think about like what would a restaurant that we really want to do what would that be and then we try it for a year
1: but i mean it's a lot of logistics uh, you know because you are, you are so it's a year so that's mean that you'd have at least to, to take like a probably a month as well to switch you know from one concept to another so yeah. so you have one concept open like for like 11 months and then something like this and then yep. I mean, uh, it's a lot because uh, from what I've seen, you change like everything. Of course, the menu, but like the the wine, uh, yeah. like the decor. Actually, like, it's it's a lot of undertaking.
0: It is, you know, and I have a really good team. But, like that, that's the uh, you know, what do we want to do when we grow up? Type thing. And so the first year we did was <laughs> the steakhouse, and then the second year was uh, romance languages. So focus on French, Italian, and Spanish, and then year three was Eastern Mediterranean. Four right now is. Gulf Coast in year five. I have no idea.
1: Yeah, you're not. Okay, so it's not like something that you have planned in advance and so on. It's like it comes, you know, from one year to another or...
0: Yeah, I mean, it'll be like, because we all have the questions, like, we look at each other, like, what are we going to do? And it's like, what do you really want to do? And, you know, the thing is, like, if you're not passionate about it, like, then don't do it. You know, that's the thing. It's like, I don't want to do a restaurant. I don't want to do something for 11 months It's going to be like, you know what? We could do this and... Uh, Maybe it'll work out. No, I want to do it to see if it does work out. I want to do it to see if we really want to do this. If we want to have fun like this, if we're going to do this again in the future, like that's what this concept is. And so basically, long story short, it was like me working part of the service at Underbelly and then running down the street and then working at one fifth and then coming back and then going forth and then going back, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth every night. And it was just, it was a lot.
1: So that's was the reason for you to say like that you have seen on the one fifth, the first year that the steakhouse was very, you know, very popular and successful. And that's why you decided to take that concept and take it, uh, you know, Georgia James, like the steakhouse after and keep it alive. Pretty much.
0: Yep. I sat one night and I said, you know what, I want to close underbelly and I want to put, you know, because we're looking for a 200 seat, 180 seat steakhouse property. And I was like, well, we already have one. And everybody's like, what? I was like, we just closed Underbelly. And then we gut it and redo that. And everybody's like, you're crazy. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And I was like, it does to me, personally. Because if we're going to grow as a company, like, Underbelly is always going to be the place where it's a whole animal, it's local produce, it's, you know, there's no produce company, there's no vendors, it's just whatever our local people drop off. And so the menu changes every day, you know, and it has to be focused on our city. And like... If I'm not there, it's a lot for people to have to harness, if that makes sense. Like the sous chefs and what have you, like as much fun as that is, like, but I like that fun too. And if I'm not there, then I'm taking that away from us. Anyway, we just put the steakhouse there. And then the conversation is like, but what about, uh, what happens with underbelly? Like I was like, well, it's a philosophy. It's a way of life. It's not a restaurant anymore. All of a sudden, then this little restaurant closes in between One-Fifth and Underbelly. That's like a 78-seat place. And I always wanted, when Underbelly first was a thought, I was like, I always wanted it to be a smaller place. I decided at lease on that. We put the UB Preserve. So we're preserving Underbelly. So The timeline as it goes was uh, we closed Underbelly on April 1st. We opened up UB Preserve May like 12th. We closed one fifth Romance Languages on the thirty first of July. Opened up one fifth Mediterranean on September first. Did Southern Smoke on September thirtieth, and then opened up Georgia <laughs> oh James on October
1: fifteenth. And that's all like eighteen, correct? Two thousand, yeah, right?
0: yeah. All that within six months.
1: Heck of a year for you. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. Thank gosh, wow. everything was really close together. So. And thank you guys, we had a really good team.
1: And are you going to potentially uh, take like the other tests you know, that you have done with, um, you know, one fifth into, uh, into other, con- like concept restaurants uh, in the future, like the, the romance language? And- oh, you know what,
0: romance language was, you know what, people spend their entire lives doing French cuisine or doing Italian cuisine and doing Spanish cuisine. And you know what, to do all three of those together was, was, uh, it was an, an interesting concept, but it's not something I really want to do again. And I think that for timing, like if we did that concept again, it would have a totally different mind feel and set because you know when we opened up that it was legitimately two weeks after Harvey, you know, pretty much destroyed our city, and so it was a hard year for that.
1: And and this is like the background, right? The French cuisine. This you have been. Classically true yeah. French train, correct? And then you have done like the Spanish aspect as well at the beginning of your career. Yeah,
0: I didn't know anything about making pasta. So that was the, like, <laughs> I, I want to make pasta. and You know what? I don't want to make pasta. It's, I'm much more of a rice person.
1: But, uh, you know, are you still excited with, uh, you know, that's a type of cuisine, the French and uh, the, the Spanish cuisine? I've liked, uh, all the other things that you have discovered along the way, I would say with uh, all the the. You know, the people that you have met in Houston? Yeah.
0: I mean, I love all three of those foods or all three of those concepts, but I, I think combined, it's it's a, it's a little bit more difficult. But the Eastern Mediterranean, I think we will do that one again. We just loved it. The staff loved it. Like Everybody involved loved it. The city loved it. So it was really good. And then Gulf Coast, it's kind of a, you know, it is who we are. It's the city, so... I think we're still working through that. And
1: that's, uh, that's local, local in terms of yeah. ingredients this time, yeah. correct? So you have no idea what 2021 will be on, the, on one field? Nope. Not exactly. a clue. <laughs> so when are you going to make the decision? Next couple months. <laughs> but, okay, you know, wow. it's going to
0: be one of those things like, what do you really want to do? You know, like I have to talk to the chef, you know, to talk to my staff. Like, what do you really want to do?
1: Sure. So you have to sit down with them and you have to create like the recipes and everything.
0: Yeah, we have a lot to work to do. And then design, and then layout. Yeah.
1: How long does it take to when you know what you want to do? When you made that decision to wrap that like, everything up to from like the menu and the recipe and test the recipes and you know the the decor and so on, like, it's on your month.
0: Yeah. Well, we flipped Gulf Coast in twelve days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we closed.
1: You're uh, crazy. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah,
0: <laughs> we, yeah, we closed uh, one fifth Mediterranean on July thirty first and opened up. One fifth romance or one fifth Gulf Coast on uh, August 12th. Like I said, this is a learning experience, and you learn a lot of things. You know what you learn is that it's financially not viable to close a restaurant for a month and still like put everybody on payroll and pay rent and do all the testing. So it's like, you know, we need to get that stuff done ahead of time. And because it's hard for staff to understand, like they don't have a job for a month, but they have to save for that. We have to, you know, make sure we're paying things. And like, it's ridiculously expensive to do so that was this year we tried it was like 12 days come in paint shut it down get everything done hammer through and you know and so at the same time like when we made the decision on a change because originally I was like you know what I said that if we did one-fifth and we had two concepts out of it that we were successful and that we loved that would be it that would be the winner and the steakhouse and the Mediterranean concepts are both ones that I feel like are good. And we weren't going to change. And then finally I came in and like June, it was like, God, we're course. changing the Gulf coast. <laughs> and everybody's like, what? And it was like, they said, for That's- three months, you said we weren't changing. I was like, ah, let's change it. And so,
1: Oh my gosh. So, I mean, I, I understand that at your level, that uh, you know, this is the, the your pace and so on. But how do you motivate like your team and the people behind you to support you and and go for people it? People
0: love challenges. I think status quo is like one of the worst things for people. Is trying to like just sit there and do the same things over and over and over again. And that's not what we build. We don't build a company that the menus don't change and the food is always the same and like that's not me that's just like i within the first two or three weeks i'm like okay what are we changing let's go you know okay that sells a lot okay let's change it let's do something else you know and it's like it's that's who i am and so it's always wanting something different flavor profiles and if we're just gonna sit on our laurels we're not gonna learn anything personally so let's let's work on new things and let's push the boundaries of what we think can be done. You know, maybe it's maybe simple to somebody else, but for us, it's a new challenge. And so that's the goal Is like, how do you do this? Like, how do you make jambalaya to order? And it was like, that's not possible. I was like, the hell it's not. And we're going to do it. And nobody could understand just this concept. And I was like, look, jambalaya is one of those dishes that I truly love, but it's only good if you're at home and you're making. Because most of the time, it's on a steam table, it's overcooked, it's tomato-y, it's not delicious. It's just, it is what it is. But how do we perfect this? And I think that we've done it. And so, you know, every night it's like 35 giant pans. So what's the secret? <laughs> That's the secret! It's just like having everything lined up and being ready to go. It's really all about place, And then it's like just putting it together and, and it works really well. I mean... Probably too good, actually.
1: Do you think you would be able to take that, uh, your philosophy and your approach to business in other parts of the country, like, uh, or is it, um, you know, because of the scale of what Houston is, but uh, is it something that could be done in LA or in New York, for instance? I mean, if
0: somebody's crazy, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying I have the perfect business plan by any means. You know, it's... Uh I think that if you have people around you that are willing to push and willing to learn and willing to do something new, I think that that's the benefit of you know having good staff. And like you know, you're always going to have your challenges, but it's like, hey guys, team, this is what I'm thinking, and they're all like, I get the look a lot, like what, and then <laughs> all right, let's go, you know, because everybody's down.
1: I would like to talk a little bit about. How you approach your creative process? So, how would you describe it? How How do you start? Where Where's the inspiration come from? <laughs> I think
0: that you know, it's inspiration comes from. I, I tell people all the time that uh, the only thing that holds you back is yourself, right? And that's that's the honest truth. Like the only thing that you can say no to is yourself. Like it's just you have to try and push and trying to learn. And you'll find inspirations anywhere and everywhere. You could just be sitting there watching somebody and be inspired by movements that they make, textures in a dish, or going out. You know, I'm not saying like I can go out to a restaurant and be like, "Ooh, this is perfect." No, it's the scenario of beauty. Western African cuisine right now is probably the fastest growing culture in the city per capita. Right? It's just you start. To, you're starting over the past. Three years, the Western Africa.
1: You go. That's your next concept for one fifth. <laughs>
0: It's well. I need. To, I no, got to learn it first. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> and I think it goes back to like the day, like we, we talked about earlier about having fish sauce for the first time. Myself and the chef from Preserve Nick Wong went to a, a place called Taste of Nigeria one night. I was like, let's go have Nigerian cuisine. He's like, all right, let's go. And we sat down, and like our waitress, she was so nice and so knowledgeable about the food. And I was like, how long have you been here? And she's like, a month. And I was like, wow. All right. So let's talk about food. And, she, you know, and we started working through it. She's like, let me pick these dishes for you. I said, you know what? We just want to learn. I, I don't care. You give us everything on the menu if you wanted to. She's like, I'm not going to give you things that are too similar. i like, okay, fine. And so we went through the menu. And what I realized is that, and it was such a beautiful experience, is that was the goat cooked long enough? Was the beef cooked long enough to my taste? No, it wasn't. It was super al dente and kind of tough and gnawy and chewy, but the flavors were very profound and textures like foo where it's just like, you know, pounded yams. Were the textures for me? No. And it didn't matter. The place was just like people picking up food to go left and right, people coming in and sitting and down and eating left and right. And it was a beautiful moment for me that inspired me and, and Nick is that they weren't cooking for me. It was cooking for the culture and learning from the culture. And it was like, and as I got up to go wash my hands, the lady at the table grabbed my arm. She said, can I ask you a question, sir? And I said, yeah, no problem. What's up? And she's like, did you live in Nigeria? I was like, I did not. I've never had this food before. And she was like, you went at that fufu like nobody's business. And I was like, I did what she told me to do. And she was like, well done. Well done. She's like, I'm super impressed that you're here. And I was like, I I want to learn it. When you can start to see things like that, you know what will, and it, it takes me back to that fish sauce moment. The first time I had it, I didn't care for it. But the more I tried it, it's not that I did not care for it anymore. It's just I respected it and it intrigued me more and it inspired me more. And so I think when you can start to talk about that, that's where you used to find these little touches of inspiration. When you can be inspired to learn. So,
1: but let's let's talk the fish sauce, for instance, that you know, it grew up on you. And then 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 once the next step then for you, how are you going to appropriate that and make it yourself and then yours and, and put it into your like your own spin, you know, and or include this into like different types of sauce Well, I mean,
0: dishes. fish sauce, for example, not all fish sauces are created equal. You have to go down the deep hole. I think especially I found out in the book that there's a there's one thing that a human being should never do. And that's a uh, fish sauce tasting backed up by a soy sauce tasting. If you sit back and taste six different fish sauce, then sit back and taste six different soy sauce. There's so much sodium in your body. It's amazing. But, you know, trying fish sauce side by side by side by side by side, you can really see, like, you start to look at ingredients. You start to look at levels of sodium. You start to look at, like, what these things are. And with fish sauce, what I learned is, like, there should be two ingredients. There should be anchovies and there should be salt. And that's it. And so, like, cheap fish sauce is not worth the time, right? Because for you and I, like, and a home consumer to use fish sauce, make sure you're buying quality, right? And that's pretty easy to do at this point. And then it's like, how do you balance? And it's learning the balance between, you know, you have something that's so super funky that you need something sweet, that you need something spicy, that you need something to tone it back, you need some acidic and it's just learning balance, and I think fish sauce is the perfect thing to inspire you to learn balance in a dish, right? Because most cooks cook with salt, pepper, and maybe a little bit of lemon juice or lime juice or something on a dish to finish it with. But it's more about understanding balance of sweetness, sour, the spice, the funk, and I think that's. I think fish sauce is a perfect ingredient for young cooks, especially to understand their palate to understand balance and flavors.
1: So uh, how would you marry it into like, uh, because of course you use it a lot of in Vietnamese cuisine and, and so on and by me and so on, but um, you know, uh, like in uh, to like other, you know, main more mainstream American, I would say like chicken or, uh, you know, or, or shrimp and, and, and so on. So how how would you suggest it's you use it? It's perfect
0: in brines. You know, if you're going to brine a chicken, I think for using a little bit of fish sauce into it, it gives it that You'll never know what's their spice or flavor profile. I think it's perfect in like bolognese. You add a little bit into your bolognese and it just gives it that umami richness. I mean, it's not something you use as a, you don't have to, if you're not looking to do predominantly a Vietnamese or Thai influenced flavor that you're adding just a little bit of sodium and adding, but not that it's more of that richness of fermentation and that richness of umami, that flavor contrast that you can't find, that you can't buy. That it's there and you have to use these ingredients. And I think fish sauce is the absolutely perfect way to put those things in there. A little bit in the vinaigrette, a little bit in the braising liquid, a little bit in like bolognese, a little bit into, I mean, it's it's really just like a little a little dab will do you, but it, it brings so much to the party.
1: What is more important for you? Is it like having like the right technique or the creativity? aspect? I think
0: creativity is probably the most important thing. But it's about just seeing things and using things and touching things. And, and technique is cool, right? But at the end of the day, it's got to taste good, right? You can make something very, very beautiful, but if it doesn't taste good, it doesn't taste good. So it's going back to like touch and flavor. And, and like I said, understanding fish sauces for younger cooks is understanding balance. You can understand balance, then that's that's where you know delicious food can come
1: from. What's your latest uh, ingredient obsession? <laughs> Don't say fish sauce. We know that. No,
0: it's <laughs> not. It's not. You know, I, I think like I'm learning more about like Middle Eastern flavors. And and that's uh, Middle Eastern and like uh, Eastern Mediterranean. I think that tahini has become an obsession with me and perfecting hummus right is Pretty amazing to me. But I think tahini, salon, you know, like date molasses and and, and learning about these textures and flavors of how, how to incorporate, like when you're grilling a piece of spicy meat and you're brushing it with date molasses, like what does that do? And I think that those kind of flavors are very bright and beautiful to me. And I tell you what, since we closed One Fifth Mediterranean, I completely miss it and we just built a house and moved in and i'm about to put a like a kebab grill outside because uh i am missing it
1: what are you the most proud of looking back at your uh, career
0: the people that have come through or that are still here with us and i think that having a good crew and having people that you can inspire and they are they want to learn you know i think over the 20 years i've been doing this i've been blessed to have a a lot of people work with me and go, you know, and go out and branch their own wings and to be who they can be. And I think that, you know what, when you see, I call them my kids, but when you see your kids grow and become amazing and be who they, who they are supposed to be, I think that's, that's the most beneficial thing for me.
1: So being a mentor is, um, is uh, something very important to you, correct?
0: Yeah. I've got, you know, some here in Houston, I've got some across the states, but, you know, it's, uh, the people that have latched on to like what you think, and you know, it's cool to walk into their kitchens now and be like, "Oh my gosh, they run their kitchens the same way!" Like this is so awesome. You know, it's like they treat their staff with respect, they treat them with love, they treat them with wanting to learn and the knowledge. It's really beautiful to see.
1: I always ask my guests on the show to take like kind of a mainstream food that a home cook uh, would do. And then uh, I asked them, how would you twist it like your way? So for you, I thought that maybe we could take like uh, chicken wings and uh, thinking about like a uh, home food, uh, like foodies at home, how would they tweak it with a unique spin uh, with a kind of like a, a chef uh, Chris Shepard Uh You
0: know, caramelized soy sauce, chicken wings. It's the greatest thing ever.
1: Okay. I mean, <laughs> I,
0: I beat that to a pulp, but like that's to me one of the greatest ever. Roast your chicken wings in the oven, right? Because I mean, how many times are you gonna fry them at your house? You're probably going to, because hooking like, a fryer up is a pain. Mm-hmm. Or grill oh, them, but yeah, then the barbecue, a, yeah, 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 but then have a hot little saute pan, toast a little bit of garlic, shaved garlic, add some uh, like uh, honey or like white sugar. Caramelize that fish sauce, lime juice. Toss the wings in that. You're good. A little bit of chilies in there too.
1: Uh huh. What that's kind of chilies? Because chilies is a lot. So what? What? I. Would you prefer,
0: I mean, you're gonna have like I always say, jalapeno, serrano, because those are two that are everywhere. Okay. You, know, you can find that pretty much anywhere. So, or or just sambal works too. But yeah, that's my wing of choice.
1: So you have a non-profit organization correct called uh, Southern Smoke so what what's the mission Smoke, yeah. yeah what's the mission of uh, of that uh, organization
0: so five years ago maybe six years ago now we were doing dinners at the restaurant because uh, Underbelly and now still at UB Preserve on the walls there's a big picture frame and it holds you know at Underbelly it was 50 photos and those are people like you would walk in the restaurant but these were 50 photos that were people from around the city, different restaurants that I feel that are inspire and make our city better, whether it be through pho or whether it be through Korean barbecue or whether it be through like a different restaurant or an artist or what have you. But it's all things that were inspiring to me in Houston. And we would pull some of those people off the wall. We'd pull like a British chef that had a, a British focused restaurant and then British curry house. And I would do it, you know, and then we would all do a, a dinner together like they would each do a course, and then we would do a course that was inspired by them. And we, I would have one of my old psalms friends, a guest psalm, come in and do the wine pairings for the night because it was what we did them on Sundays. And I wanted my GM slash psalm to have that night off with his family. Anyway, we did this to raise money for culinary scholarships, and we raised enough money to send somebody through culinary school. The next year, my psalm that would come in, and Antonio Giannola, who would come in and. Uh, to the guest saw him. he asked me, he was like, hey, you doing those dinners again? I said, I don't know. What's up? He's like, can, if you do, can we do one to raise money for MS? I was like, yeah, why? What's the cause? I mean, what's the reason? He was like, well, I was diagnosed with MS. And I was like, you know what? We're going to throw a party. And he was like, all right, well, I was like, but we got to figure this out. Give me some time. So I called up, you know, Lindsay and I were talking about it. I called up Aaron Franklin and Sean Brock and Rodney Scott. And I was like, look, you guys do South Carolina cuisine. We'll do Texas cuisine. We'll do this thing out in the back, you know, parking lot for like two, three hundred people, and it'll be awesome. We'll raise some money. And everybody's like, Yes, of course. <laughs> I go to talk to the Department of Special Events at the Mayor's Department. Cause I just wanted to block off the sidewalks because I didn't want anybody to get mad. She looked at me, she's like, What are you doing? I told her, She's like, All right, here's what's happening. I'm closing off all of the streets around you. You're getting up, we're pulling all street closures. Here's the stage. You guys can now have live music. So here's all of the people to basically like help you with things. Lighting, people to put up fence, fencing, you know, all of the infrastructure. I was like, ah, okay. And we walk out and I look at Lindsay. I was like, what just happened? (laughs) She's like, I think we have a festival now. And I was like, oh, good Lord. What do we know about festivals? Like, we don't know anything about this. And she's like, I know, we'll figure it out. You know, we're getting down and, I told Ryan, I told all the chefs, I was like, hey, you remember that 200 people? Man, it's going to be like a 1,000. Everybody's like, yeah, no problem. We got you. And I was like, okay, cool. So the whole goal was, you know what? I said, we're going to raise $100,000 for the MS Society. And everybody said, don't do that. Don't say that. And I said, are too late. I already did. And at the end of the day, you know, finally like a month out, I was like, hey, Lindsay, maybe we should tell the MS Society that we're doing this. And they laughed when we told them. I'm sure they get told that people are raising money for parties for them all the time, and then it doesn't come to fruition. And I don't, I don't doubt that. You know, I know it happens. And so they came out, they helped us out. The same people that laughed cried when I wrote them a check for 181 thousand. And year two comes around, we do it again. We raise 284 thousand that year. Um, year three, we're about a month out. Harvey comes in, puts a real hurt to our city. And I looked at. I looked at our crew and I said, look, we can't, we can't do this for MS this year. We have to put that on hold. We need to find a way to take care of our industry. We need to take away, find a way to take care of anybody in our industry that isn't, that is suffering, that is lost things that, you know, cause restaurants are affected. Like, yeah, it's going to your house is destroyed and then your restaurant's slow. How do you make money? You know, how do you, how do you take care of things? And so. We figured out a way that we could put up an application system in Spanish, Vietnamese, and English, where anybody in the city. And I said, I don't care if you work in a drive-thru, if you deliver the milk, if you stock the groceries, if you you know, if you if you farm things, like whatever, I don't care. I want people to be able to basically put in an application and if they come in times of hard hardship that we can cut them a check. And We did 139 checks for
1: Mm, $501,000 that year. Congratulations.
0: So then at that point, we realized that there is a huge need in our industry for folks in times of crisis that they have somewhere to go. And so the Southern Smoke Hospitality Relief Fund is now in effect. We now split money between MS and for our hospitality fund so that... Every year at the festival, we cut the MS Foundation a check, but then we do a year-round organization for people in our industry—not just here in Houston, but anywhere that come in times of crisis. Whether you have a dark night, whether you trip and twist your ankle but can't pay your doctor because you got to work, or however it may, however it may be, but you know, in five years we're just a bunch of cooks and restaurant people. But in five years, we've we've donated back one point
1: six million. Okay. Wow, and and do you organize still those um, I would say festivals or like block parties with um, other chefs and so on? Yep. Okay.
0: Yes. Yeah. Happens every year in the fall, and you know we get chefs in from all over the country. And this past year we had twenty six chefs. We raised the most amount of money we've ever done. We did five hundred and seventy six thousand dollars that day. So it's uh, every year we grow, but every every day we fight to do better. Mm
1: -hmm. So you say it's in the fall. So when uh, what month is it? Or it changes every.
0: <laughs> it changes. You know, traditionally we always looked at the Texan schedule to see what's right because I have to go to the games. <laughs> <laughs> so we would always do the bye week. But I think we're planning on on October fourth this year. We can't wait for the schedule to come out. So I think we're just going to call it a day. Do it on October fourth.
1: Okay, Chef, it's almost like, um, you know, not an hour, but close. We are getting close. So I have to be respectful of your time. So I would like to finish the interview with a quick series of uh, rapid fire questions, if it's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. So you and I, uh, we are going on the Flavors Unknown Tasting Trek in Houston. So which are the five places you are going to take me to? Restaurant-wise? It could be a restaurant, it could be bar, it could be, um, you know, food-related. So we're going to go to Cali
0: Sandwich, banh mi. It's the best banh mi in the city. And uh, for $3.25, you're not going to beat a better deal. It's the best sandwich out there. We're going to go to Saigon Pagalak because that way when people come into town, they say, you know what, I want to try Vietnamese food. People just generally have the the common thought of it's going to be pho or banh mi. We already did banh mi, but now we're going to go try traditional family style, Vietnamese. Let's see. Where else would we go? Hi, Kang. Cantonese-style seafood house, just delicious. Definitely going to go, but well, we're not going to our places, right?
1: I don't know. I mean, I would be good to uh,
0: I can't <laughs> pick my own places. That's just really weird. <laughs> Coltivari, because I think what they do over there is just absolutely fantastic. Pastas and pizzas and really like garden cuisine from their gardens, and it's so good. The pickled butternut squash salad, just epic. We're going to go to Tacos Tierra Caliente, because I think for a taco truck, it's probably one of the best tacos out there. And then probably HK Dim Sum, because I think Dim Sum made to order is absolutely fantastic. But if it's a Saturday or Sunday, we're going to go to El Hill del Guince, where they do spit-roasted goats in the dining room.
1: Oh, I love goats. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. But I mean, goat cook, cooked over open fire, and then lamb barbacoa. God, it's so good. Very good. Yeah.
1: So what's your favorite guilty pleasure food?
0: Uh, General Zoe's chicken. Okay, I love it. Yeah, it's crazy. And a really good egg roll. God, God, I love that. American Chinese food is probably one of my favorite things on the face.
1: Can you give me three dishes that you could not live without cooking or eating? Gumbo,
0: probably a banh mi, and I just love a roasted chicken. I mean, the simple roasted chicken, but anything that has to do with like a rice dish with it, probably be it.
1: So what is the one thing that annoys you the most in uh, the industry? Uh, the amount of poke shops.
0: <laughs> okay. I think it's a, There's no reason anybody should be able to get really good quality amount, a large amount of quality fish for $7. It's disgusting. And grocery store sushi, but that's just me.
1: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just came back from Japan not too long ago with my youngest <laughs> son and I cannot eat like another grocery um, sushi piece anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I walk through and I just see people grabbing all the mayonnaise laced rolls and I'm like, oh my God, why are you doing that to yourself? I know it's $4, but please stop.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Buy something as affordable. <laughs> there, you're right. Yeah. yeah. What's your uh, pet peeves in the kitchen?
0: Man, I got a lot of them. Excessive use of rosemary, tidiness, being untidy is a huge thing. I think not organized, not cooking, clean with
1: thoughts. I mean, with you, they better be organized because, uh, you know, with I'll it on you in a heartbeat. things yeah. <laughs> that you are putting in place, that's a, they better be. Okay, so, I mean, I, that's that's it on, uh, on my end. So, I mean, thank you so much for being a guest uh, on the show, I, I really uh, love having the discussion with you. I hope my I'm pleasure. going to go up to uh, Houston uh, into th- in 2020. I uh, would love to um, you know, spend more time and, and continue the conversation. It was very nice. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast, Flavors Unknown. I do know that there are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there. And I'm deeply honored that you have decided to listen to mine. If you like this episode, you can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com and you will access all the links and everything mentioned in this episode. Please subscribe to the podcast and share it with a foodie friend or a colleague. And one more thing, please, please rate and review the podcast on your phone app. In two weeks, do not miss the episode with Chef Mark Welker on my podcast, Flavors Unknown. He is the executive pastry chef at Eleven Madison Park and the restaurants Nomad in New York, LA, Las Vegas, and London. If you want to ask questions to Chef Mark Welker, please send them to me at the following email address, contact at flavorsunknown.com, and I will include some of them in my conversation with him. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people.
0: Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.